everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? Doing great, Phil. It's always a pleasure when we're able to do this. And today's extra special because we got Luke Rockhold on the card. <laughs> it's going to be we fun. Fi- we finally get to talk about him in a major a major fight. So this should be uh, this should be interesting. It's the uh, the week of Christmas. How's your? Uh, are you feeling the the Christmas heebie-jeebies? Are you feeling the Christmas spirit, or uh, what, how's how's your holiday season been so far? Well, I realized that I may have made a major mistake because I, one of the requests that's come in has been a a, a, a like a, a Jeep or like a little car for my seven year old that she wants to drive around in. Well, I went online and. Um, you know, it might get here, you know, early part of January, but it's not getting here this week. So um, I'm going to have to, you know, get creative there. Yeah, so that's, something out. that's stressing me out. But, um, you know, I, I, I typically do my shopping in person at the last minute. I'm definitely the dad who hangs out at the mall on Christmas Eve. So I got I got I got plenty of time as we record this. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, we got all ours pretty much done but but with what the grandparents send my kids we barely need to get them i it's i want to buy them each something just so we can say we got them something but they don't need it they get so much from the grandparents it's not even funny so. but 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 phil do you have the lights like um your like no. uh, christmas vacation no you no don't? no no we're we I, I we used to decorate when we lived up in massachusetts we decorated a little bit but since we've been in Tennessee, we have hardly done anything outside, and this year especially, oh yeah, uh, it just has not. We have not felt the Christmas spirit at all. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it has not it is it, yeah, no no outside decorations and hardly anything inside either, other than the Christmas tree itself. So, but anyways, well, we can talk about the presents that were given us in this episode today <laughs> from the event that we're watching. Nice little transition there, but I want to welcome the listeners inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters and milestones of strike force, which is a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. At this point, we are in 2011. Uh, it, we, we will be discussing strike force Barnett versus Haritanov, which took place on September 10th, 2011, at the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati, Ohio, the heavyweight Grand Prix continued with two tourney fights on this card, and the winner of those two fights would face each other in the main event of the Grand Prix. Uh, and so in the main event tonight, we're going to see Josh Barnett lock horns with Sergey Haritanov. The co-main, we saw Daniel Cormier step in for the injured and recently released Alistair Overeem, Strikeforce heavyweight champion at that time. We'll talk about that. Uh, and he would be taking on the surging Bigfoot Silva. We also saw Jacques Ray Souza put his Strike Force light, or I'm sorry, Strike Force middleweight, Strike Force middleweight title, excuse me, on the line against Josh's favorite fighter, Luke Rockhold. Are and you calling? Are you calling Luke Rockhold a lightweight? Is that no? What I'm sorry, my, no. That, that just slipped out. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Uh, in addition, King Mo matched up against Hodger Gracie while Maximo Blanco stepped in for the injured Josh Thompson to tangle with Pat Healy. I got to mention, the undercard was pretty stacked here, too. Fejal Cavalcante, uh, Yoel Romero, Mike Kyle, Cyborg Santos, and Emmanuel Nunez, who was not a big deal at that point, uh, all competing. Uh, so kind of kind of crazy for that undercard. And I would think that when we'll talk a little bit more about this, but at least one of those fights, maybe two and possibly even three of those could have replaced the Pat Healy, uh, Maximo <laughs> Blanco fight on the main card, which is not about anyways. All right, we'll get there. All right. Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. And the previous Strike Force event was Fedor versus Henderson, and that was the end of an era. It was 
Uh, Fedor in, uh, competing in his final for the final time inside the hexagon, losing via KO to Dan Henderson, who also competed for the final time in Strike Force Two, and he was the Strike Force light heavyweight champion at that point. Never actually defended the title, which we saw multiple times uh, from the Strike Force light heavyweight champions throughout the course of the. Uh, the promotion, it was very, very rare to see anybody actually defend the title. So Dan Henderson com- <laughs> completed that tradition by bolting over to the UFC, or at least I don't say bolting, he had moved over to the UFC uh, after the after that bout. But we did see Misha Tate announce her arrival as a bona fide star as she submitted Marlouz Kunin, who had never been submitted before at that point. She got the Strike Force women's bantamweight title in the process. Also, Tyron Woodley, Tim Kennedy, and Tarek Safadine won decisions over Paul Daly, Robbie Lawler, and Scott Smith respectively with the welterweight title recently vacated by Nick Diaz. When he went over the UFC, the thought was that the next champion might be found amongst Woodley or perhaps even Safadine. Those two bouts that if uh, Woodley or Daly really stood out or Scott Smith or Trek Safadine really stood out that we might see, you know, Hey, this guy's going to fight for the title, but we would have more clarity on that belt soon. Coonan sadly did not only just lose her title in August, just a couple months after this, she also lost her contract as Zufa released her from her strike force agreement, the former champ was caught up in a feud between the UFC and team golden glory. I, I looked into this a little bit. Essentially there were issues with golden glory wanting the uh, fight purses for their athletes to go through them. And then they would turn around and pay the fighters, which is a very shady sounding <laughs> agreement. So I don't blame the UFC for not wanting to engage on that level. And so the UFC Zufa, they just started cutting uh, different fighters from Golden Glory and Kunin. As a result, she would never uh, she 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 was released and kind of caught up with several of her other teammates, and she would actually never get to compete in the UFC. But let's get to the fight announcements for this card that we're talking about. Uh, as I just mentioned, some of Golden Glory's team had been released from Zufa. There was one just slightly bigger name than Marlos Kunin to add to that list, and that was Strikeforce heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem. Now th- we don't know. It didn't sound like the Golden Glory stuff was part of, you know, part of the impetus for him being released, but I would think that it would have to be with everything else that was going on. But essentially, uh, he had beaten uh, uh, Fabricio Verdun at a June event, and then the idea was that he was going to come back and fight on the September event. But he cited nagging injuries so that he needed to heal up and that uh, he would be ready for an October event. But, I mean, you know, strike, you're asking Strikeforce to move an entire event a month because you're not ready to go. So instead, they released him. And uh, it's interesting, though, MMA Junkie reported on rumors that the big Dutchman was looking to leverage himself into a better payday for the event. So he was there playing a little little bit of, uh, you know, gamesmanship, so to speak, from a, uh, you know, a negotiating uh, standpoint. But instead, Strikeforce Scott Coker wouldn't play games. They released him and replaced him with one of the Grand Prix alternates, Daniel Cormier. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. Also on this card, we mentioned that we were supposed to be jo- see Josh Thompson. He was going to take on Maximo Blanco, but as we often saw in the career of the punk, he got injured in training, and he would have to be pulled from the fight. In this case, he broke his foot. So stepping into that slot was Pat Healy. So we mentioned earlier, and we're going to tick down the undercard, but I just don't know how you end up putting Blanco, who had never competed in strike force at that point, don't believe he had competed in the UFC at that point, uh, and you put him against Pat Healy, who's a durable, you know, tough fighter, but again, not a real big name. And you put them on the the main card when you have the just recent former light heavyweight champion in Fajal taking on Yoel Romero, who's a a you know a, a, a Olympic medalist. I, I just 
You also have Mike Kyle on there. Then you have Cyborg Santos, who recently vied for the welterweight title, taking on Jordan Maine, who was a, a big name, or not a big name, but a, a rising star. Just maybe it was a con- contractual thing for Blanco, where he signed his contract and was supposed to get a fight on the main. I, I don't know, but kind of a weird placement. Um, again, we'll we'll talk we'll talk more about the undercard, and you can see what I'm talking about. There was a challengers event here to talk about. Grigel versus Duarte took place on August 12, 2011 at the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas, Vegas, Nevada. Not a ton to cover here, but there is one major news item, the Strikeforce debut of Rowdy Ronda Rousey. Uh, she was only 2-0 entering this bout with Sarah D'Alelio, uh, but her debut was anticipated. Um, it was not a huge story at that time, but, I mean, come on. This is a, you know, the 2008 Olympic bronze medalist in judo, so... Anytime you have an Olympic medalist that's going to make their MMA debut, I mean, that's going to be at least something of a big deal. And she would armbar D'Alelio. She would compete one more time on a challenger's card before getting a shot at the title in 2012. So obviously you're going to hear pretty soon. You're going to start hearing Ronda Rousey's name a lot more on this podcast. All right, we get to the main event here, or at least the main event of what we're talking about today. Strikeforce Barnett versus Heratonov took place on September 10th, 2011 at the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati, Ohio. On the call would be Mara Winalo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich, which, which I would say is probably my, my favorite Strikeforce combo. Josh, what did, was this your favorite combo too? Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree. These three had good chemistry, largely because, well, well, we know Morrow's great. It doesn't really matter who he's with, but I think Pat and Frank kind of didn't like each other, so yeah. they, they would kind of jab jab yeah. at each other, and it yeah. just made for a really good comedy. Uh, yeah. Obviously, they respected each other, but I just thought they were funny, and I, I you know, there's a few things on this show that made me laugh involving them. Yeah. So, I, I'm going to use kind of a weird analogy for this, but I, and I, mean, I hadn't thought about this before, just as you were talking, this came to mind, so we'll see if this works, but... They say that, you know, when it, when uh, two actors are uh, going to be a couple on a show that, that I, was, I remember this from friends when Joey would say Joey said that, you know, uh, when he had good chemistry with an actress, that it was because they had not, you know, gotten intimate. They hadn't slept together. And so they there was this like sexual tension. There was this, you know, yeah, there was this sexual tension. And so and he asked Chandler, he's like, you know, have I ever had chemistry with an actress that I've acted with he's like no no of course not so I I think the fact that Shamrock and Militich had talked about fighting and we've covered that on this show previously we've had both Frank and Pat on this show and kind of talked a little bit about that um you know they they were supposed to you know supposedly fight at one time and there was yeah there was definitely some tension there so I feel like because they had never consummated from a, a wait, wait, wait. standpoint. Are you saying Frank and Pat never slept together? Yeah, I mean, yeah well, that and they never fought. Okay. So I, but I think because they had never actually settled, like, who was the better fighter or had never, you know, really done that, that I think that there was that kind of, you know, a little bit of, of tension between the two of them. So they would take these kind of passive-aggressive pot shots <laughs> at one another. And they were good-natured. I mean, they never turned ugly or anything. But I, I agree. I think it gave them chemistry. And obviously, Frank Frank is Morrow's manager today. I mean, they, they are, you know, really close and good friends. And, and Frank has seen Morrow in the, the best of times and the worst of times. So obviously, they've got great chemistry. And then you throw Pat in there who had also worked with Mara. Like, yeah, I think obviously you, you and I have been very clear that we were, neither of us were big fans of Gus Johnson. No disrespect to him personally, just, you know, an outsider and a guy that he worked hard. It was clear because he got better and more knowledgeable of the sport. 
um, as he went along. But, you know, you're just not going to out-knowledge guys like Frank Shamrock and Pat Militich. So I, I, I think that because they hadn't fought that there was this kind of, you know, like who's the better guy, who would have actually won. I mean, Frank was a bigger guy, although Militich could definitely – fight at 185 he was a champion at 170 and frank uh you know he was more of a champion at uh he was yeah more of a champion at 185 and then uh you know he would fight all the way up to to you know light heavyweight at times so they you know they frank would have been a little bit bigger but i would have god that would have been a great fight i would have, even at this point i would have loved to have watched these two go well, you know, if we're lucky, we'll see it in Bellator or something like that. <laughs> Still waiting on that. I, I think, you know, I think Coker has gotten, you know, gone away from the uh, the seniors league or the the legends league, you know, mm-hmm. approach that he was having for a while there. And I, I understand it. I get it. I'm not. I don't. Not necessarily saying that he should continue that. But I did. I man, I was one of those ones that kind of. I got excited when I was here. You know, going to hear that it was going to be Shamrock Gracie again, or you know, Rampage Fedor. Or, you know, those kind of like I, to me, that was kind of fun. Like, I know it's not like the greatest MMA and it's not the high level MMA, of course, that you should expect. And so that's probably why they've kind of gone away from that more legit legitimacy and credibility. But um, yeah, I wouldn't want to see Frank and Pat now for sure. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, 2011, when they were still, you know, right around 40, I, I still would have been I still would have been all right with that. But anyways, regardless of the commentary team, this event would not draw huge ratings, just an average of 274,000 viewers on Showtime. You know, things were definitely going uh, downhill at this point in terms of their draw. And, and again, and we've got a little bit of time. We're, we're, this is not a super long card, and we're pretty early on in the, uh, in the episode. So I did want to mention, get your thoughts on this, Josh. But, you know, when, when Zufa fought or Zufa bought Strike Force, I, I mean, to me, again, the, the, you know, the bloom was off the rose, so to speak, that it was like, all right, well, this is owned by another company. The other company has the bigger names, you know, they're taking a lot of the big name fighters away from this promotion. So it's becoming more of like a feeder league. And, and, and that's, it's kind of like the whole NXT thing as great as I, you know, in WWE, as great as NXT is, or how, or was to me when it had all these great, you know, Adam Cole and um, you know, all the, uh, uh, Johnny Gargano and all these incredible events they put on Samoa Joe over the last couple of years, their ratings still paled in comparison to raw, uh, and, and SmackDown. And yeah. so, and that's, you know, that's a promotional thing. That's a brand awareness thing. That's, you know, there's a bunch of reasons behind that, but they diff, I don't think raw or SmackDown had the better wrestlers, but they had the bigger names that had been promoted better. So with strike force, you're losing your big name guys. Diaz leaves Fedor leaves. Although I don't think Fedor was necessarily a, uh, you know, a guy that, like he was, you know, he lost three straight. So I don't, I don't know that he was, they were clamoring to re-sign him at the rate he wanted, but you know, Henderson leaves all these, you're, you have champions, straight up champions that are leaving your promotion and going over to the UFC. Why would I, so why would, as a fan, why would I stick around and shell out money to watch a, you know, a, a second tier, you know, what's becoming a second tier promotion at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I agree. And I think also for me, it was, it was really cool to be behind strike force because they were the competition to the UFC. And I always like to root for the underdog, whether it's in a fight or, you know, in business, you, you want to see more, more people compete. It's just more exciting that way. And so when you're watching strike force and it's separate from the UFC, you're like, everything is like cool. It's like being an AEW fan. It's like everything is cool. Even if it's not that cool, it's, it is because it's something different. And I think they lost that once everybody knew this was a, 
Azufa promotion, and uh, it was definitely not not the same. I mean, we had some good fighters on this card, but you kind of knew, hey, if these guys won, they weren't going to be around much longer, and that's no fun. I want to get to the undercard. So we mentioned earlier that we saw uh, Pat Healy and Maximo Blanco on the main card. So let me mention a couple. And Josh, you and I both watched a couple of these fights because they were just big enough fights that I wanted to see them. But uh, 185 pounds, Dominique Steele defeated Chris Mirzwiak. Mirzwiak, I think. M-I-E-R-Z-W-I-A-K in the uh, small possibility that Chris is listening to this. My apologies for butchering your last name. Uh, at 205 pounds, Mike Kyle defeated Marcos Rogerio de Lima via announced decision. At 170 pounds, Jordan Main defeated Cyborg Santos via TKO come by way of elbows at 318 of the third round. I definitely think, you know, Cyborg, a recent title challenger, could have been on the main card. And again, Jordan Main was a big up-and-coming star at that point. At 135 pounds, Alexis Davis defeated Amanda Nunez via TKO come by way of punches at 453 of the second round. This started off as quite a war. Davis and Nunez just going all out to open things up. Nunez seemed to gas herself out and was a lot slower in the second round. She got rear-mounted and blasted with punches before the ref stepped in to stop it with only seven seconds left in the round. And this looked like, a, you know, based on a recent fight that we saw, this looked pretty familiar to me. Wow, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I was stunned. I was blown away. I have never seen this fight before. It was almost exactly like the Juliana Pena fight, except it went a little bit longer and Juliana, you know, Pena, I think, you know, just tapped her out. But it was like, like Amanda Nunez came out like a whirlwind and then she got tired and she got beat. Crazy. I, I had no idea that she lost to Alexis Davis. And it, it just... Oh, it was not a classic fight. It was pretty sloppy. They were just kind of slugging each other. And um, Amanda Nunez looks bigger now than she did then. They all do, but I don't know. Just I, I, I will say right now, and I said it at a previous show, I do not consider her the best pound-for-pound pound female fighter of well, all Well, th this definitely hurt that. <laughs> like, or, <laughs> I mean, she was still still fairly early in her career here, but then – you know, obviously we're talking about her recent title loss to Juliana Pena and she did not look good in the second round of that fight uh, as to Joe Rogan's comments that, you know, basically was inexcusable that she would gas out and in the second round. And yeah, I mean, she was tired. That was a very quick tap. And I, I it really does hurt her in my eyes as far as being the goat. I mean, she's still one of the greats for sure, but I, man, I, I'm I'm kind of she kind of slid down a little bit in my eyes with that performance. That's why Rhonda's on the top of my list. Phil. Yeah, I know. If, if you want to go back and listen, she's on type. <laughs> she's on type in your strike force list. I still think I'd put. I still think Cyborg's a better fighter overall. But anyways, yeah, okay. All right, so and then we get to so at uh, light heavyweight, Fejal Cavalcante defeated Joel Romero via KO combo of punches at 4:51 in the second round. That's right. In case you are not aware, Yoel Romero actually fought in Strikeforce. I think he had two fights, if I remember correctly. But, uh, yeah, the first round was was interesting. I mean, you could just see how quick and powerful Romero is. I mean, he just, just yeah, just, I mean, you could just see it on display. And neither fighter looked fantastic in the first round. I, I'd almost call it five minutes of feeling each other out. But, holy crap, what a second round uh, this, this fight had. I mean, the first round you could just really skip it. But in the second frame, both Feja and Romero just went all in. 
Romero had the former champ in trouble at one point, but Feijal weathered the storm and put the Cuban in danger. And towards the end of the round, Feijal went for a high kick, which missed, but then swung his fist around with the momentum and landed a spinning back fist that seated Romero. Uh, the Cuban tried to withstand, swinging back, but Feijal stayed on him, knocking him down again before the ref stepped in to wave off the fight. Romero, like I said, he looked really good, powerful, quick. I think he was overall the better fighter. But Feijal's experience advantage, I think, was the difference. I think he was able to deal with this kind of whirlwind that was coming at him, and and just. But man, what a good, what a great second round to watch. I, I was all in on that. I always liked Feijal. I was very disappointed that he did not become something bigger. Obviously, he's a former world champion, but I thought he had a lot going for him, and I know he just kind of lost it there. But what a spinning back fist! I mean, yeah, that was like Kung man. Lee or something. And he caught him perfect. Like, you almost never see it connect. You see people do it, it connected. And he beat a guy who's who would go on to become just a killer. I mean, incredible knockout power in Romero. So this was a good good undercard fight. Yeah, definitely. And I, I absolutely – I don't know how big of a deal Romero was at this point. I, I don't even know where he was at uh, in his career. So it was kind of interesting that – or I, yeah, so I, I can't say, oh, he absolutely should have been on – um, the main card, but I mean, come on. So I, I quickly looked him up. He's, um, man, he was a four-time cha- uh, challenger for the UFC middleweight championship. He actually competed for, for the UFC middleweight championship four separate times, but he was a, uh, an Olympic silver medalist in 2000 big, you know, this is a big time, uh, wrestler for sure. And he's somebody that I, I, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I think you could have given an opportunity, um, so yeah, no, this was his one fight in Strike Force. He he had a neck injury that kept him out after this fight until 2013. So he was he was out for quite a while, but yeah, he was definitely early on in his career at the at at this point. Uh he was only he was four, undefeated at 4 and 0. Um and so yeah, but he had TKO'd or knocked out all four of his opponents uh leading up to this, but three of those fights were in Germany, one was in Poland, so this was his uh US debut. So it, you know, you can kind of understand that a guy that's four and oh hasn't fought in the states are you going to put him on the main card against a you know the former light heavyweight champion i would over blanco and and pat healy uh i i definitely would have but you know let me just say that i think that i'd have put romero on the card just for aesthetic purposes i mean he's a muscular dude he's a big dude and uh you know he's a legitimate athlete in another yeah. sport Especially I, I with would, that wrestling background i mean yeah. it makes sense so I, I would have put him in there uh, over Pat Healy <laughs> any yeah, day. Yeah, I, no know, disrespect to those guys. No disrespect to Blanco and Healy, but I, I just would have, yeah, I, I think we're in agreement there. So, And that's even without the incredible second round and the finish and all that stuff. All right, but this does bring us to the main card, and we do have to talk about Pat Healy versus Maximo Blanco. And to be fair, it actually did end up being a pretty entertaining fight. Healy was 25 and 16 coming in again. He was supposed to get a rematch with Josh Thompson, but instead would fight Blanco. Healy was a former UFC and WEC fighter, and he recently had scored a decision victory over Eric Wisely at Strikeforce Challengers 18 for his fifth win in six fights. This included additional victories via decision over Strikeforce's Lyle Beerbaum and Brian Tavares, and that lone defeat had come at the hands of Josh Thompson. So he was definitely on a run. Blanco was 8-2-1. He was a former king of Pancrase who had had a seven-fight stint in World Victory Road Sengoku event series. At the time of the event, uh, he was riding a six-fight win streak with the first five victories, including wins over Rodrigo Dom and Katsuya Inoue, all coming via knockout. 
In fact, seven of his eight career wins had come via stoppage with four in the first round, so he was a dangerous competitor for sure. Once the bell rang, these two started off really quickly, getting right after it. Blanco landed a right leg kick that put Healy on his back. Blanco followed up, mixing up strikes, strikes and grappling before Healy was able to push him off and stand back up. And But, man, Blanco was just all over Healy, landed some good shots on the feet before taking uh, things down to the mat, again, blooding up the American in the process. However, this is where things went awry. While on the mat, Healy grabbed for an ankle lock of some kind, and to get out of it, Blanco started kicking Healy in the face with his free foot, and the ref stepped in because obviously that was a, a breach of the rules. And he called time, and Healy looked to be really hurt. And honestly, I was a little surprised he continued, but he did. I mean, he'd been getting beat up, so that would have been an out if he wanted it. But once things restarted, Blanco continued to throw everything but the kitchen sink on the feet, a virtual whirlwind of strikes. However, Healy was able to get a takedown and used a reverse crucifix to land some really good ground strikes before the round ended. Yeah, those kicks were pretty uncool. I guess he had to escape. But the funny part of this was that Frank Shamrock, right after this is happening, says, you know, he's, he just asked the question, are those kicks even legal? And, <laughs> and Pat Militech responded, uh, I think Frank's always had a problem with the rules. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just yeah. like instant. Well, it was almost like they re- digs. Yeah. <laughs> almost like they rehearsed it. And, uh, you know, Frank just kind of rolled with it. But. Uh, yeah, was, you know, Frank, I, you know, had a couple fights there where he, you know, he was, I think he was disqualified, took some yep. liberties, shots yep. to the back of the head and some yep. other things he's done over the years. But yep. that was hilarious. I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the second round, we saw more of the same uh, with Blanco simply picking Healy apart on the feet. However, he appeared to have gassed himself a bit and couldn't stop Healy's takedowns. This eventually led to a rear naked choke and Healy had completed I wouldn't call it Scott Smith, you know, as far as in terms of a comeback. But how dare you? I know. I knew you'd be. I knew you wouldn't be happy about that. But, uh, but it was definitely a comeback for sure, and and a pretty, you know, a pretty entertaining fight overall. Scott Smith doesn't come back until the final round. Ah, I see. This is too early. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think those kicks to the face kind of pissed off Healy. Kind of woke him up, and he came out in the next round, and he went to work. He was relentless, and that was a really cool submission hold. I think that's one of those things where, like, it just the dirty, dirty fighting backfired, and it woke Healy up. Yeah, and I will say, let me go to the other point about putting him on. I was thinking about as you were talking is. You know, going over his record, and he's such a journeyman. You know, it might have been, we know Scott Coker's such a nice guy. You know, it's like, let's put Pat on the main card. You know, it's the opening card. He's loyal to the sport. He's durable. He loves it. We can always count on him. Let's do it. I could totally see that being one of the reasons they put him there. Yeah, I mean, I guess. It's just most of his wins came by decision. Like, he, he you know, was clearly, at this point, he was, you know, 40 plus fights into his career. I mean, if he's going to be a world champion at this point, uh, he would have been. And and so, you know, I, I if you're if you're putting him in there, I think you're putting him in there to build up another guy. And I don't think that's Maximo Blanco, a guy who's a virtual unknown in the U.S. So I, I you know, obviously this was supposed to be Josh Thompson. So I, I, you know, I think originally the idea is Thompson gets a good win and is get you know trying to angle back towards Thompson Melendez three, but. Of course, Thompson gets injured. We have Blanco step in. Yeah. So, you know, it's possible. Maybe it's a little reward for him. I, I I don't know. But regardless, Pat Healy defeated Maximo Blanco via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 422 of the second round. Healy would be back the following year in strike force while Blanco would move on to the UFC after this bout. He had a nine-fight run with the promotion going four and five before hanging up the gloves with a record of 12, eight, and one in 2016. 
All right, this brings us to a light heavyweight bout between King Mo Lawal and Roger Gracie. Originally, Mo and Gracie were supposed to fight in July, but a Gracie stress fracture had postponed the bout. Uh, a former Strikeforce light heavyweight champion, which on a, on a side note, I feel like you could say that about pretty much everybody who competed in the promotions 205-pound weight class. Uh, but Mo was 7-1 and one coming into this one. He was coming off a title loss to Feijiao the previous year and was looking to get back into title contention. Uh, Mo had recently moved to AKA, which he hoped would fuel a resurgence in his career. Still very early in his career, Hodger Gracie was undefeated at 4-0 coming in. The Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu master was coming off a rear naked choke win over Trevor Prangley and now had the opportunity to really establish himself as a title contender if he could get past King Mo. Really, for the fight itself, not a whole lot to this one. The two kind of felt things out early on, tentatively trading strikes. Gracie seemed intent on landing punches and kicks while King Mo seemed unfazed, his hands down a lot of the time. Gracie did land some shots, including a nice knee, but it turned out Mo didn't have much to worry about because towards the end of the round, the former champ felled Gracie with a solid right hand behind the ear. Mo then landed another one on the mat, and Gracie was out. Kind of a weird, the way his body turned was kind of weird. Uh, quick, brutal ending, and King Mo looked to be on his way to reclaiming his light heavyweight crown. This was a good fight for King Mo. I think Hodger Gracie looked a little scared. He was tentative. He was kind of standing with him and just kind of willing to kind of almost spar with him the first part of the round. And King Mo had his hand down. I mean, it was just Gracie had opportunities here, and he just didn't take them. And I don't know. I, I might be wrong here, but I watched the replay. The first time King Mo went in, they, they collided heads. And so King Mo hit him in the head, and then you know this, then he he knocked him out right with that incredible right hand. And I just sort of feel like Gracie just kind of folded, like I, he kind of turned in, and the, he he was motionless. <laughs> so the referee stopped it. I don't know if he was motionless because he was actually motionless, or if he just said, "I'm not here today, and I'm not going to beat this guy, and it's over." Um, so it was weird, though. I mean, I don't think Gracie was out. I think he just stopped moving and stopped, stopped fighting. Uh, his body is not great for MMA. He's too big. He's too long. I've said this before. Obviously, he's in this family, so he's got to be an MMA fighter, and he's got to be a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but um, I just felt like he didn't. He, he was too skinny for his frame. He was not muscular enough to be like a, a John Jones. I mean, he was so tall, and King Mo just got underneath him and knocked him out, and I don't think Gracie ever really did much after this. I don't know. Yeah, we'll t we'll talk a little bit more about him. Both uh, both King Mo and Hodger Gracie would be back in Strike Force, but only one more time each. So we will talk a little bit more about them and wrap up their careers basically at that point. But uh, officially, King Mo defeated Hodger Gracie via KO, come away punches at four thirty three of the first round. All right, this brings us to the title fight, middleweight bout between Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza with the Strikeforce middleweight title on the line. Souza was 13-2 and two coming in and was a training partner of Anderson Silva, the Noguera brothers, and some other really – Pedro Hizzo, a bunch of really high-level Brazilian fighters. He was a former Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion and one of the highest-level BJJ practitioners in MMA at the time. Uh, he had gone undefeated in Strikeforce, winning four straight fights, which included beating Tim Kennedy to win the then-vacant middleweight title. Uh, it had been vacated by Jake Shields when he left for the UFC. Jacare had subsequently defeated Robbie Lawler to defend the belt for the first time. 
Rockhold at seven and one was certainly a star on the rise, though he hadn't competed on the main card of a Strikeforce tentpole event since 2008, so he hadn't been super visible. Plus, due to injuries, he hadn't competed in 19 months. Big deal to come back from a almost two-year layoff uh, to to take on uh, the champion and a really really strong and brutal guy. So, uh, but despite all that, he'd won six of his fight, all six of his fights inside the hexagon, was clearly a threat to Jacare. But regard, no matter how you looked at it, a big step up in competition for Josh's favorite fighter here. All right, but once the bell rang, Jacare looked good early on, landed a nice right hand to the temple around 35 seconds in. However, Rockhold was okay. He did eat some good right hands further from Jacare as, as the champ tried to get the challenger underneath him on the mat. Domination for the first few minutes of the first round. However, Rockhold displayed his striking chops with a really cool switch kick and a few other strikes coming on strong towards the end of the round. But I gave it to... Jacare 10-9 after the first round. Yeah, this was an interesting round. I think Rockhold grew a lot in this first round. He he was active. He he had some really good, uh, you know, almost like movie Hollywood movie style kind of kicks. His switch kick, his his spinning back kicks, they were impressive. Uh, and he did a good job defending against the takedowns. Uh, he definitely showed that he was there to win. Uh, it was not a Hodger Gracie first round by any means he was there to compete and uh, it was nice to see him maintain that focus in that first round because Jacare was was putting on a lot of pressure um, I do think Jacare won the round but I think Rockhold uh, was competitive yeah no I don't think there's any doubt about that definitely a close round Rockhold in the second round was pressing the action early on he paid for it though getting stuck with the counter right hand that backed him up, and the AK product was able to withstand, however. But, God, Jockery was just so powerful. I mean, everything he threw, everything he, you know, he dove in for a take, it just all looked just so powerful. He had so much strength. Um, we saw that in the brain, remainder of the round, though it was very competitive. I, I feel like you could see Rockhold getting more confident as the fight wore on, but I still felt like Jockery won the second round as he hurt Rockhold a few times. And so, to me, it was 2018 thus far. Yeah, I agree with you. Another close round. I think Jacare exposed some of Rockhold's chin problems that, you know, what we would see later on in his career because he did hurt him with a nice punch right to the chin. And and it wasn't even as though Jacare had everything behind that punch. It, it was almost like he was kind of going one direction, falling backwards, and he still landed with the punch. Uh, Rockhold kept throwing kicks and you know, he was doing his good. He, he was starting to uh, to get a little bit more, uh, shall I say, his kicks were starting to play a greater role in the fight. Uh, but Jacare was just a little bit stronger. Um, and, and and I thought that Jacare was able to, to pull on the round. But you could sort of see things shifting a little bit in that Luke's kicks were definitely making Jacare pay attention. Yeah, he was he was absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't say any better. I agree. Uh, in the middle frame, we saw both competitors trying to uh, trying out different kicks and strikes. Neither was having a, a real clear in, uh, advantage. After an accidental strike to Jacare's groin, we got a little bit of a break, and after they re-engaged, Jacare got a good takedown, though the challenger was up shortly after. Lots of trading after that with Rockhold landing a nice shot to the chin. I gave him the round 10-9, making it 2-1 in favor of the champ so far. That low blow seemed to slow Jacare down. Um, I, I think it may have been a difference maker going forward. It was just enough to take him off his game. 
And Rockhold started to be a little bit busier, and I think he did win the round. I agree with you. Jacare seemed to tire. I don't know if it's just because, I mean, he is more muscular than Luke. Uh, maybe he just was carrying too much weight. And I think the low blow might have just zapped him of, of some energy. But I think we're seeing Rockhold now kind of switch the momentum. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a good point. In the fourth round, Rockhold was looking pretty fatigued early on, but definitely a better striker than the champ. And Jacare, as I mentioned, he had such great power, but he would load up, and it was clear that Rockhold could see the strikes coming. Jacare finally started consistently going for some takedowns, but Rockhold was able to turn them back. Really a tough round to score, but I'd probably give it to Rockhold 10-9. So it was even in my mind going into the final round. It was kind of weird to watch. I think that Jacare was the harder puncher. He was the stronger fighter. But Rockhold was busier and, and more active. So it, I think it appeals more to the judges when, when Rockhold is throwing more, even if Jacare is the stronger fighter. Um, and, and he was starting to tire. I thought it was 2-2. And I tried not to remember who won this fight, although I, I, I remembered who won the fight, but I tried to trick myself into thinking that it didn't happen. And it, it was close. It was 2-2. And uh, I was trying to like go into that fifth round thinking... Wow, who's going to who's gonna pull this off? Well, it was clearly a very, very close fight. Um, it, yeah, I, I, we both seem to have it 2-2 going in. I did think Rockhold was coming on, uh, and we saw that more in the fifth round. More trading uh, on the feet for the, for the first half of the fifth round. Jacare was able to land a nice takedown with around 215 left in the fight. But, jo- but And I thought, man, all right, well, if this holds, then to me, Jacare won the fight. But with Rockhold was able to stand pretty quickly after that. Landed some really nice punch combos that hurt the champ, who was clearly exhausted by this point. The two fighters went av- at it at- for the last minute. Neither really stood out or landed anything. Um, and then in the last 10 seconds, you can see Jacare really come alive once he heard the the clapping sound of the, you know, the whatever they hit together to make you let the fighters know there's 10 seconds left. I gave the final round to Rockhold, giving him the fight and the title, and the refer- uh, the judges agreed. Luke Rockhold defeated Jacare Souza via unanimous decision. F- 50 to 45, so some- one of them gave all five rounds to Rockhold. The other two scored it 48-47, so three rounds to two. Uh, for Rockhold to win the Strike Force middleweight title. And Luke was obviously quite emotional. I mean, he was in tears, and I have so many people to thank and all that. I, You know, honestly, Josh, you, you let me know what you think. This could have gone either way, and you could have made a case for either one of them win, winning it. I would have liked to have watched this not knowing who won and see how I felt. Um, but I would have even grudgingly accepted a draw between the two of them. I mean, it was just such a close fight. Um, I, you know, I, I do think from an entertainment perspective, it never really felt like an epic championship fight. I mean, there was lots of action. I mean, there wasn't like a lot of dry spells, but a few real highlights. I mean, if you look at the highlight reel of this, it's like two and a half minutes long and it's like a 25 minute fight. So kind of a tough to find a story in this fight, but I, you know, I, I rock hold. I don't, I I'm definitely not going to say, Oh, he didn't deserve, you know, he didn't deserve the decision but you really could have made a case either way. First of all, what's up with that 50 to 45 score? You mentioned Yeah, it. I, I, like what fight were you watching, dude? Seriously. Uh, I mean, there's no way. I mean, uh, you got to give one round to Jacare, definitely two and maybe three. Okay, so whatever, we'll throw that out. Um, this was a good fight, but honestly, I think Jacare lost the title. I don't think Rockhold won it. I think Jacare just didn't do enough to win, and Rockhold was a little busier. Jacare got tired. 
it could have gone either way. I would not have been disappointed. There's that old adage of if you're going to take the title, you got to beat the champion. I don't know that Rockhold beat the champion. Yeah, I think, I that's think he, kind of that's kind of my issue with it. Is exactly that that yeah, you're you're supposed to beat the champion, and I don't I don't think he beat him. Yeah, and I think part of it is his style. You know, he he looks good when he fights. He's so big. He's tall. He does the karate kicks. You know, he he's doing spinning back fists in there. Um, he's a very appealing fighter. Bite your tongue, uh, Phil. You know what I mean. He's just very. <laughs> He's very fun to watch because he's so big, but he's very quick. And so I think that probably had a little subliminal effect on the judges in those close rounds. Um, so either way, you know, it's fine. Rockhold wins. Jacare wins. I was not impressed with Rockhold's promo. You know I love Luke Rockhold, but he can't talk. He can't cut a promo. And, I mean, I just felt like that's the time you got to act like a tough guy. And he went in there and he's like bawling and crying and I want to thank my camp. And it's like, you know, you got to be thinking about your next fight, Luke. So whatever. But um. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I'd hear you bury, uh, bury your boy on this. But yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm so frustrated by Luke because, I mean, quite honestly, like he looks like a million dollars. He could have been the greatest. Like he could have been such a big star in MMA, but he just kept getting hurt and hurt and hurt and. Even now, he was like supposed to fight like this year, I think, and he got yeah, hurt. Yeah, no, hurt. He was, yeah, he was scheduled to fight and he got injured again. So it's just like so. this guy could have been the face of MMA had he stayed healthy because he was very good. But time, time passes; it's never going to happen now, you know. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was he was really excited this time though. I was like, damn, this guy's going to kick ass in the UFC one day. Well, I mean, hey, he's he's the only the only guy to win the middleweight title in both. Well, no, that's not true because Frank Shamrock. But uh, you know, really, the, the real modern, middleweight, the to, modern the real, era, yeah, yeah, the modern <laughs> era. He's the only guy to do it. So you, you, it's hard to, it's yeah. I mean, he's had a great career. I mean, the guy's only sixteen and five. He's only fought twenty one times, and he's been competing since like two thousand eight. So it's crazy that he's only fought that amount of times. But injuries, you know, it, it happens. So. Honestly, Anyways, I'm surprised but, he didn't find the WWE. I mean, he's got the perfect, like, I don't, side. I, I, again, I don't think he has enough personality for it. Well, that's so. true, too. But 6'3", you know, geez. Yeah, and yeah. obviously model-looking, you know, he's actually literally modeled. So, good-looking guy, obviously. So. <laughs> Well, right, he's, anyways. No, he's no Bigfoot Silva. Sorry. He's no Bigfoot Silva, which is a good a good segue for it. So, as mentioned earlier, uh, we got in, our, in the co-main event with Daniel Cormier versus Bigfoot Silva in the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand, P, Grand Prix. Excuse me. This was supposed to be a fight between Alistair Overeem and Bigfoot, but the heavyweight champion who had an up and down relationship with Scott Coburn and Strike Force had claimed injury and been released instead. In his place would be Grand Prix alternate Daniel Cormier, who was undefeated at 7-0 at the time, and he was coming off a dominant unanimous decision over former UFC heavyweight title challenger Jeff Monson. A product of AKA DC was another star on the rise for Strike Force, and this fight with Bigfoot presented a huge opportunity for him to submit that. Bigfoot at 16 and 2 had won nine of his previous ten fights, which included three straight in in Strike Force. He had beaten Andre Arlovsky, Mike Kyle, and Fedor Emelianenko. So he was clearly on a roll and seemed primed to reach the finals of the heavyweight Grand Prix. But man, what a sizable, noticeable difference uh, in size between these two. Uh, you could see right at the outset, but it did not matter. As less than a minute in, DC landed an overhand right that seated Bigfoot. He 
let the Brazilian up, but then landed more nice shots to hurt the bigger man. And it was clear Cormier had no interest in going to the mat with Silva, which was smart. He stood up each time Bigfoot went down to the mat. And while Bigfoot had the size advantage, DC was clearly clearly quicker and and faster and he kept tagging silva two nice lefts and a right respectively backed up the big man dc was able to stuff a takedown attempt from bigfoot from there cormier landed a short right uppercut that dropped him and he was followed up with a couple standing hammer fists and that was it i mean we had a huge upset dc was now going to the grand prix finals for sure i remember this and and like you knew dc was good but you didn't expect him to do all this at that time uh he was obviously a smaller guy. He, he he had issues aesthetically with with training and looking like he was in shape. And I just remember being like blown away as he was able to win this fight and you know and move on in the tournament. You know, Cormier's incredible fighter. I mean, he, he really is, a, is. He's a legit fighter. He was he looked pretty thick in this fight. It doesn't matter. You, it, it doesn't matter what you look like. If you're a good fighter, you're a good fighter. And he was a good fighter, and he was well-conditioned. And that's why he's been so great. And, and we saw this in this. I mean, just he took apart Bigfoot like he, like he was the bigger guy. And Bigfoot was the smaller guy. He just totally dismantled him. And, uh, you know, just he's, Cormier has power, wrestler and power. And he took him down, and it was over. And, I mean, I guess... You know, this is kind of dumb to say, but I mean, I can't believe he wasn't in the tournament to begin with. I know he was young and he was new and, and he had all these other big names, but my goodness, like, I can't believe only because Alistair Overeem got canned did we see Daniel Cormier, you know, in this tournament. Yeah, I mean, you look at the other names and, and the experience level and all that stuff that, of the other fighters, I, I totally get where DC was at at this point, not having him in there. I think having him as an alternate made a lot of sense. It's probably a thing where, uh, you know, Mendes like, Hey, we've got this, you know, Olympic wrestler and, and he's, you know, on the upswing and all right, well, yeah, we'll make him an alternate. And then he just walks through, you know, Monson and then just destroys, uh, uh, you know, Bigfoot in less than five minutes. So yeah, clearly a, a, now a bona fide star DC would be back in the hexagon. The following May to face the winner of Josh Barnett and Sergey Haritanov in the finals of the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Grand Prix. This would be it for Bigfoot in Strike Force. Uh, however, as he would move over to the UFC after his loss to Cormier, he went three and seven in the UFC. Uh, he got knockout wins over Travis Brown and Alistair Overeem, so he finally got that fight uh, with the Demolition Man, and he and he beat him, knocked him out. Uh, but he did lose to Cain Velasquez twice, and then once each to Andre Andre Arlovsky, which was revenge for Arlovsky, Frank Mir, Mark Hunt, Stefan Struve, and Roy Nelson. Uh, he's still competing, and I, I got to add the note kind of sadly uh, within MMA, he is one of the guys that I worry about with the amount of knockouts that he has suffered in his career. I, I just I don't think he should be competing. In fact, he was actually pulled from a fight, I believe, last year uh, as we record this. Uh, because he was unable to uh, pass the medicals for it. So I, I, I'm not a fan of him continuing uh, to fight in his 13 losses. So he's, his record, so again, going into this fight, he was 16-2. and two. This is 10 years ago, 2011. Since that time, he's won three fights, yeah. you know, and, and he's lost 11. So he's gone 3-11 and 11 since, uh, including this fight, he's, he's gone three and 11 and out of his 13 career losses, 11 of them have been by knockout. So 
I, I, I'm not a big fan of him still competing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, I think he's competing in bare knuckle fighting too, probably because he can't get sanctioned in MMA. But I know that he was involved in some card recently where it was, you know, sort of a bare knuckle thing, which is very obscure, you know, but I guess there's an audience for. I think what's sad here is the pay structure of the UFC. This guy beat Fedor. I mean, he beat so many guys. Three and seven. So he fought ten times in the UFC, and you're telling me this guy still needs to fight? I mean, this guy should have enough money to chill out and do a podcast or, you know, or something. Like, I can't believe he still needs the money. That is sad. Uh, Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just doing it because he still loves it. But, I mean, within MMA, bare-knuckle fighting and kickboxing, he has not won a bout since 2015. And his record in MMA stands at 19 and 13, which, again, doesn't really tell the story. He's gone three and 11 since this event into the, in September of 2011 in MMA. That's not including the losses that he's had in uh, in bare knuckle uh, and kickboxing. So just not a good, you know, not a good, not a good thing. And, and I really think he should move on. And it's unfortunate that he's still competing in my, you know. In, in my opinion. And again, that's just, that's just my opinion, but I, I don't think it's really a good thing to see a guy like that struggling like he is. And, and again, it's, it's just, yeah, it's tough to watch. So, uh, but let's, let's move on. Let's get to the main event. Josh Barnett versus Sergey Haritanov, kind of a Rocky versus Drago thing, America versus Russia. A veteran of pride, Haritanov was 19-5 and five coming in. He brutally knocked out Andrei Arlovsky in his strike force debut, which was his most recent bout. The Russian had won two straight in four of his last five and had defeated the likes of Alistair Overeem, Fabricio Verdun, and Pedro Hizo during his career. So pretty solid tally uh, for, 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 uh, for him. Uh, and then of course, Barnett was a former UFC heavyweight champion. He'd also made his strike force debut earlier in the year, submitting Brett Rogers rather easily to kick off his participate participation in the heavyweight grand prix at 31 and five. He was a longtime vet of both grappling and MMA and the catch wrestling practitioner had beaten some big names in the sport, including Dan Severn, Randy Couture, Alexander Emelianenko, Mark Hunt, Minotaro Noguera, Pedro Hizzo, and others. So, Definitely an experience edge uh, for Barnett, but this looked to be a it looked like it would be a tough fight. Uh, some good early strikes from both competitors, but less than a minute in, Barnett landed a nice trip takedown. Kind of a weird and funny moment. I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but Haritanov had Barnett's arms trapped from the bottom, and they kind of just stared at each other. And I I think they were saying something to each other, but Barnett like smiled. It, it was kind of a weird moment. You don't see that happen very often in MMA. <laughs> Yeah, it was long enough that Mauro Ronaldo had to address it. And I don't know if you heard it, but he said, I don't think they're whispering sweet nothings to each other. <laughs> it was just yeah. hilarious. It reminded me of like The Undertaker and Brock Lesnar when they like yeah, turned and looked at, at each, each other. other. Yeah, <laughs> but this was like, you know, legit. It was it was crazy. It was yeah, hilarious. it was weird. But anyway, Barnett was already in full mount, not a position Haritanov would want to be in. We could see... Uh, you, could, you could see Barnett's catch wrestling in full effect here. I mean, just grinding, pressing his head and forearms against Haritano's face. I actually did, not too long ago, I did a little bit of research into catch wrestling. All right, what is that? And it's just super, super aggressive submission wrestling. Like, you're trying to hurt your opponent while looking for submissions. Like, you're grinding your forearm. You're, like, pressing your head into their face. Like, you're doing everything you can to hurt and make the other guy uncomfortable, probably to somewhat distract him so that you can, you know, isolate an arm or whatever and go after a submission. But you could see it in, in full effect here. Um, he also mixed in some really good ground and pound. And eventually the Russian turned his back from the bottom, which allowed Barnett to sink the hooks in and sneak in some tough shots kind of underneath the armpit. 
punching Haritanov in the face. I mean, he was just getting beat up. And this forced Haritanov to change positions, and he rolled back over on his back. And this time it was his undoing as he was submitted very quickly with an arm triangle choke. Uh, just a, a catch wrestling clinic from Josh Barnett, and he was officially in the finals of the Grand Prix against Daniel Cormier. I mean, this was fun to watch. Uh, like you said, it's just like you can't help but appreciate the catch wrestling that Josh Barnett is doing. And uh, it's a smart fight. You know, he didn't want to trade trade here. He would have got knocked out or it would have been a tougher night for him. So it was good, good fight. And it set up a really exciting uh, finals that, you know, yeah. I'm ex- I've never seen the, I know who wins it, but I've never seen the, the, the final. So I'm interested to see it. I realized I didn't actually read the, the official result of Daniel Cormier. Uh, he defeated Bigfoot Silva via KO come by way of punches at 356 of the first round in this one just went a little bit longer. Josh Barnett defeated Sergey Heritanov via submission come by way of arm triangle choke at 428 of the first round. So as we mentioned, of course, Barnett will be back the following year against DC uh, in the finals of the Grand Prix. Uh, this would be it for Heritanov, however, who has, in Strikeforce at least. Um, he has competed in a host of promotions since leaving Strikeforce. He has a record currently of 33-9, and nine, and he's still fighting today at 41 years old. Uh, in fact, he is actually scheduled to headline an upcoming 2022 Eagle FC event in Florida under promoter Habib Nurmagomedov. God, man, I can never say his last name. Nurmagomedov. Now, here's the interesting thing, Josh, about this is that uh, you mentioned that uh, Antonio Silva had been pulled, or one of us mentioned it, that Antonio Silva had been pulled from a card uh, recently. Well, this actually was the card that he was pulled from. So Silva was scheduled to take on kickboxer Tyrone Sponge on the January 28, 2022 uh, EFC event, so Eagle Fighting Championships event, which is supposed to be in Florida. However, Silva was pulled and was replaced by Sergey Heritonov. So, how you know what goes around comes around, I guess. How interesting that it all two... begins and ends in Strike Force. That's I guess. Yeah, right. there, there you go. There you go. But and there's been no reason why Silva was pulled from the event. But man, I, I, I'd be tough to not speculate and say that it might be a, a you know a health situation. So. Um, but but regardless, Heritanov is, is going to be fighting under uh, Habib's uh, promotional banner. And so that that should be interesting. We'll see what happens there. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Still competing today at 41 years old and still getting big fights. He's competed in Bellator not too long ago. And so interesting stuff. But let's look to wrap up things here. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Total disclosed fighter payroll of nine hundred and forty two thousand dollars barnett made one hundred and fifty thousand sergey heritonov made a hundred cormier got a hundred antonio bigfoot silva got a hundred luke rockhold got 50 while uh uh hanado jacare souza got 70 king mo 85 hodger gracie 80 pat healy seventeen thousand five hundred maximo blanco thirteen thousand then a few notable ones on the undercard Fajal got 60,000, while Yoel Romero got 10. Alexis Davis got six, and Amanda Nunez got 7,500. 7, Personally, I'm not fighting for anything less than 100 grand. Just Okay, well, we'll put that out. Uh, we'll put that out for sure. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what kind of offers that we get. Uh, right. But overall, pretty entertaining night of fights. King Mo looked devastating with the strikes while we had a new world champion in, in his AKA teammate, Luke Rockhold. DC versus Luke, uh, Josh Barnett looked like this was going to be an in, an intriguing fight. So we had some good stuff coming out of this card. But Josh, what did you think? Well, you know, I love Strikeforce. It's it's a great night for AKA. Uh, so many of these names: Luke Rockhold, D- 
DC, uh, King Mo. These are fighters I really like. So, you know, it was really good because this is, this is sort of like the the heart of Strike Force to some degree, certainly with Rockhold and Daniel Cormier. So I like that part of it. Um, it was a little topsy turvy. Uh, Alexis Davis beating Amanda Nunez. Like I feel like that's a Mandela effect thing. Like how did I not know that? How come that was never talked about in the UFC? Like, like they they made it seem like she was this unbeatable monster. She got you know tapped out and and gassed out by Alexis Davis who didn't last a minute with Ronda Rousey. I don't even think she lasted 15 seconds with Ronda Rousey. So I just sort of feel like that was like, like, wow, I can't believe that that fight was kind of written out of, out of history. Um, you know, l let me ask you that, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit already, but Phil, what would have happened? They were in the same world. Ronda was on the challengers show. Amanda Nunez is on the undercard. What do you think would have happened if somehow they would have been matched together in strike force during oh, man. this period? You would have given away a big fight too early on <laughs> in their careers. That's what would have happened. But I, I think Ronda would have won. I don't think Nunez was on that level yet. And I, Ronda, is, I was looking at her record. She won her first like nine fights by armbar. Like all nine of them, I believe, by armbar. So I, I just I feel like she was already on another level at that point. Nunez, I believe, I believe Nunez eventually surpassed her especially with her striking. But uh, I think at that point, yeah, I think it would have been a takedown and an arm bar uh, pretty, pretty quickly early on. I, I just, that's the way that I would have seen it going. I quickly looked up her record. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight. Her first eight wins were all, and that's all of her strike force fights. And then on to the, into her first two of the UFC. And they, those were all, yeah, uh, the, 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 those were it. Uh, and as far as the Alexis Davis fight that you mentioned in the UFC, uh, you were dead wrong. She lasted 16 seconds. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, like not, uh, not, I mean, and, I, I don't know why you even have me on the show, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, watching can, something you like be that, that far off. I mean, what can I do? <laughs> so, uh, she did knock her out the Davis, by the way, to your interesting little footnote is that Davis was actually her first knockout victim via punches. Um, her previous bout with Sarah McCann, she had knocked her out, TKO'd her with a knee to the body. But this is the first time she actually punched somebody out. And then she would follow that up with the Cat Zingano 14-second <laughs> arm part. God, she was – man, I mean, like – so the Misha Tate rematch in the UFC went into the third round. you got to always give it to Tate. Tate was, you know, was always a tough out for it. But then Sarah McCann – uh, 106 of the first round, Alexis Davis, 16 seconds of the first round, Zingano, 14 seconds, Beth Correa, 34 seconds of the first round, and then her last two, Holly Holm and Amanda Nunez, which obviously didn't go the way she wanted to. But, uh, yeah, uh, amazing, amazing uh, MMA career for Ronda Rousey, we, for sure. And I think we talked about this, but have you seen the Sarah McMahon-Ronda Rousey fight where Ronda, like, flies at her and takes her down and, like, submits her i'm sure this? i'm sure i've seen the highlight but i don't it's, i don't remember it's like it off my head. you'll never see it again it was great like the craziest move ever uh but anyway uh just to finish my thoughts here uh king mo wait great way for him to come back and and i think dc is just so spectacular to watch and and so good and obviously rockhold had his big moment i could have done without the healy fight on the main show but that being said you know, he's a good MMA fighter and he got his moment and, you know, he did what he had to do. But um, kind of like a mix and match show. But overall, I would say it, this was a good show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it was good. 
All right, as far as what's next, I really don't have much to share with you listeners on that. I'm working on a fighter interview. It's a guy that has agreed to be on the fight, but or agreed to be on the podcast previously, but it's been a while since we've been in contact. So I'm going to hold off on the name in case it doesn't happen. But if it does, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. So I'm not sure what we're going to have uh, for next week's show. Uh, it could be me and Josh doing something. It could be a fighter interview. Uh, it just depends, obviously, with uh, Christmas Eve being on Friday and Christmas Day on Saturday. It's obviously going to be a pretty busy weekend. So I don't know how much time we'll have to do uh, research. So we're just going to have to wait and see. But we'll get something up for next Monday by hook or by crook. So I uh, we'll hope that you're looking forward to that. You can reach me at fillitinsidethehexagon.com. I would love to hear from you. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. I hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. <laughs> Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.